0: All right, well, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, I'd like to welcome all of you who are watching and following along with this edition of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame's Hall Call Interview Series. Uh, I'm Will Driscoll, the Executive Director of the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame, and I hope everyone is having a wonderful and festive holiday season, staying safe and staying healthy. Uh, As always, before we get started, I'd like to thank all of our partners and sponsors here at the Hall of Fame who helped make Hall Call and everything that we do possible. Uh, Priority Automotive, the city of Virginia Beach, Optima Health, ESPN Radio, 94.1 here locally, and Davcon Inc. Um, So uh, thank you to them for everything that they've done and all of their support this year and then looking ahead to next year. Well, let's jump right into it. You know, Chaos can be subjective. Uh, However, in my almost 39 years on this planet, I don't remember a year in which more newsworthy events have happened in intercollegiate athletics in the Commonwealth of Virginia than what's taken place this past year. Teams changing conferences, some with very long standing affiliations, long time affiliations with these conferences, high profile jobs becoming available. And of course, the play on the field has provided plenty to talk about when it comes to college athletics in Virginia. Well, who better to help us sort it all out the past year and then looking ahead? To future years, then longtime uh, Virginia sports writer, thirteen-time Sports Writer of the Year, and twenty fourteen Virginia Sports Hall of Fame inductee David Teal. David, uh, people can see you on the screen joining me, so thank you for taking the time to join us today.
1: My pleasure, Will, and I'm far older than you, and I don't recall you're quite this eventful either.
0: Well, this is great, then. This is exactly why we want to talk about this. Uh, <laughs> for those who don't know, uh, you never want to assume anything. David has spent almost four decades covering sports, particularly college athletics here in Virginia. After 36 years with the Daily Press, he spent almost the last two years. So you joined right at, I think, the beginning of the pandemic with the Richmond Times Dispatch, correct?
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: Froze just a little bit. The, no. the, the fun of doing things live with an Internet connection. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure most people were able to hear that but uh, for those for those of you who are following along you can also follow David on Twitter at by David Teal uh, it's all one word it, you can see all of his musings uh, with the Richmond Times dispatch but David let's kind of get back into that initial point. Um, you've been doing this like I said a very long time you know you even went to JMU as a student you've been covering athletics right. in Virginia for almost four decades, where does this year fall in just the amount of newsworthy events as it pertains to college athletics.
1: Well, I Will, I I think it's a miracle that all of us don't have whiplash of some degree just from our (laughs) turning so fast at the the different rapid news stories that seem to break almost on a daily, weekly basis. So, yeah, it is it has been seismic. It, It truly has.
0: Well, you know, let's let's kind of start with the two highest profile schools. And I always say that just because of their placement in the ACC, obviously with the power five dominating college athletics, what does the power structure now look like when both football jobs were open at the exact same time? And what does that mean for the two programs moving forward?
1: Well, this is the second time in a six year span. Will, where both jobs opened simultaneously, because as, as you'll recall, You know, Virginia replaced Mike London with Bronco Mendenhall prior to the 2016 season. And Virginia Tech replaced Frank, the retiring Frank Beamer, with Justin Fuente. Well, it just so happens that Fuente and Mendenhall exit simultaneously under very different circumstances, paving the way now for Brent Pry and Virginia Tech, and most recently, Tony Elliott at UVA. I mean, I think most of us as the season progressed anticipated that Justin Fuente was in trouble at in Blacksburg and, and sure enough, they made a late season announcement that this would be it for him and JC Price took over on an interim basis. But then Bronco Mendenhall surprised a lot of people, including his bosses at UVA after the Cavaliers lost to Virginia Tech in the regular season finale to end the regular season on a four-game losing streak, he announced that he is stepping away, not only from UVA, but from college football. He's He needs to, in, in his words, recharge and reinvent himself. He's an empty nester for the first time, he and his wife Holly, and he wants to do something different. And for those of us who have known Bronco for a while, it's not that surprising because he's just, he, he, he thinks in a different way than most of us do. Football, is, he does not view it as his ultimate calling. He, he believes that his Mormon faith and service to others, uh, requires him to do more than just coach football. And I think that's what he is looking for right now.
0: So that, that legitimately was a surprise then. I know a lot of times people like to kind of frame the narrative in, in, the, in the media because that's obviously what what they want to do. But that, that was a surprise to everybody at the university.
1: Oh, it, it absolutely was. And I know some would like to frame it as, oh, because Virginia was so poor on defense this year. The administration mandated that he change some things on the defensive side with his staff. Well, that's just patently not true. Carla Williams, the AD said yesterday she was stunned at Mendenhall's decision to step away in <clears throat> and, and the mere thought of it. And Mendenhall, for his part, he calls Carla Williams the best AD on the planet. So if both of them are lying. Are exceptional at it. But, <laughs> that way, and but but again, as as much as it surprised the UVA administration, it's not out of character for Mendenhall. In fact, I have a group text with some other media members connected at UVA, and I told them the week before sooner rather than later, not anticipating it being this soon, <laughs> but that Bronco Mendenhall is gonna walk away because he's not really on board with NIL and the transfer portal and such. It, it just cuts against his, his core values, not saying they're, they're right or wrong, but he's just not content with the state of college football. So in that regard, his stepping away didn't surprise me.
0: Well, we're, we're actually now talking with the prescient uh, David Teal, who can yeah. see into the future, <laughs> add that to the resume. Um, you know, we'll, we'll continue talking about the, the UVA and tech jobs right now as we continue this, this conversation about just overall college athletics. But in the grand scheme of kind of uh, division one, the power struggle that's going on with all of the conferences, where do these two jobs kind of fit into that? You know, Virginia Tech for a long time was seen as a, as almost a top 10 job, but it was held by, by coach Beamer. Uh, Mm -hmm. And then Virginia, we've seen them ascend to, to pretty high, uh, to pretty good heights. So, so where are these two jobs now uh, when compared to say the Clemsons and and their other ACC brethren?
1: Well, I, I think it it best will they're mid level. ACC jobs right now. I mean, Clemson and Florida State are are clearly at the top. Miami obviously has a heritage there with five national championships, but the Hurricanes are two decades removed Mm -hmm. really from national relevancy. And they just fired Manny Diaz and brought in Mario Cristobal. That's Miami's sixth head coach since 2006. That's the most of any power five program in the country in terms of coaching turnover. So, you know, I I think Virginia and Virginia tech fall in in the middle there. Virginia tech I think is still clearly a better job, you know, for for all his faults, Justin Fuente was five and one against UVA. Mm Uh, the Hokies have won what is it, 17 of the last 18 uh, against UVA. So, so clearly, Virginia Tech is it's a more football-centric school, and the, the job I think holds more prestige in the coaching community.
0: Well. We know we know that the Commonwealth Cup always brings a lot of eyeballs, particularly here in Virginia. Um, And so we're excited to see these two new coaches going at it. And maybe who knows, maybe they'll face off 14 times the way that Coach Beamer and Coach Welsh did over their careers. (laughs) I think uh, if if that's the case, both band bases should be happy, right?
1: Yeah, if you can get that kind of uh, staying power from a head coach these days, it is rare indeed.
0: Well, let's talk about some of the uh, the other changes that happened in college athletics this year. JMU, ODU, Liberty, they're now all shifting conferences, you know, when, when uh, I guess the first round of conference realignment took hold about a decade or so ago, or probably even in the mid 2000s when the ACC did their first expansion. Right. Is there a school or a specific program in Virginia that's going to benefit most, you think, from the, the shifting uh, realignment and the conference that they're going into?
1: I think you can make the argument, n- number one, I think all three will benefit. Uh, Liberty going from football independence to to Conference USA. Scheduling becomes so much easier. Bowl access becomes easier. So in that regard, the Flames win. JMU moving from FCS to, to FBS competition. That's a win given where the Sun Belt is. But to me, the big winner here is Old Dominion, considering where the Monarchs were in that far-flung Conference USA that never really made geographic sense for ODU. The Monarchs know, now go into the Sun Belt and look at that East Division though. It's gonna be Marshall, JMU, Old Dominion, Appalachian State, Coastal Carolina, Georgia Southern, Georgia State. That's geographically compact and sensible. That's like-minded schools. You can dig in and have football rivalries there. I've, I think it was a no-brainer for Old Dominion to, to make that move into the Sun Belt. And, and, and since Marshall and JMU were coming along that I think was, was an ultimate sales point there.
0: I know that the regional affiliations and the regional rivalries are something that especially a, a lot of Virginia sports fans have always taken seriously. I mean, you go back to the old CAA um, and Tom Yeager is a, he's an inductee here at the hall of fame. We, we, that was a conference that had six Virginia schools in it, with ODU, VCU, George Mason, um, William and Mary, JMU, and I know I'm, I'm forgetting Richmond. one, but Richmond, Richmond, Richmond. And and so you had those regional robberies. Now it's still it's a little bit of a bigger footprint, but I what I've also noticed is a lot of these schools, even though they're no longer in those, they don't they have those conference affiliations. They're still making the effort to try to keep some of those traditions alive in a non conference scheduling component. Is that the sense you're getting from, from some of the schools that they, they do still see the importance of playing William & Mary, playing VCU, playing Richmond, just to kind of keep that regional uh, rivalry and uh, healthy and alive?
1: Well, well, certainly in men's basketball and the Olympic sports. With JMU moving up to, to FBS, a lot of those football rivalries are, are going to go away. Uh, You know, the annual Jamie Richmond, Jamie Williams, it's just not going to happen. And that's a shame for those those who have such fond memories of those rivalries. But, hey, Oklahoma and Nebraska don't play every year anymore. Texas and Texas A&M don't play every year in in, in football any longer. So those are just things that, you know, fans have to accept as, as these things evolve. But certainly the other sports, those rivalries are still important. And in this day of you know, fewer resources and, and economic stress, in part caused by the pandemic, schools are looking to schedule closer and closer to home just to cut down on transportation costs, to you know, cut down on missed class time. So those those regional non-conference games make more and more sense today than ever.
0: Yeah, and you know you you mentioned it that that kind of shrinking of the geographic footprint again. It's almost an unintended consequence of the pandemic that could be beneficial to a lot of us, and that we will maybe see you know whether it's on the soccer field or the baseball field, a lot of these regional rivalries kind of get a little bit more life into them. Um, you know. To, from your perspective, though, just kind of talk about the overall health of, of the college sports scene in Virginia. We, we obviously know about the ACC schools, but when you look at the depth, Division One all the way down to Division 3 we're sending teams on deep runs in NCAA tournaments, whether it's ODU baseball last year or Liberty field hockey this year, they made it to the championship game.
1: Championship game.
0: We have Division Three national champions from Christopher Newport, Virginia Wesleyan, and others you know what what is what excites you most i guess about collegiate athletics in virginia because we're not the most populous state but we do have 37 sanctioned ncaa programs
1: no and they're really competing at a high level as as you mentioned and you mentioned old dominion baseball uva went to the college world series
0: and actually knocked out I, I should have mentioned that
1: knocked out ODU. <laughs> yeah no yeah. It, it, it was great theater right I mean it was really really riveting a- a- entertainment so, so you've got that and you know Virginia is the two-time defending men's lacrosse national champion and there's a power in in, in women's soccer uh, so yeah I would say that the, the health the competitive health is really in James Madison, what, what's today? Wednesday in, in two days, JMU will play in the national semifinals at a North Dakota State in, in football. You know, the Duke's you know last try in an FCS national championship. So your point is quite well taken. Yeah, it, it's really
0: exciting. And, and one thing I should mention, even though it, it, it kind of has flown under the radar, is all four uh, of the FBS programs in Virginia qualified for a bowl. Now, they yeah, all qualified at six and six, but they still all qualified for a bowl.
1: Yeah, well, Liberty seven and five, I believe. <laughs>
0: That's right. <laughs> don't cheat don't the flames. Don't discount up. that.
1: <laughs> yeah, they, they, they'll come after me. Yes, Virginia, Virginia Tech, and Old Dominion qualifying at six and six but such different paths to to 6 and 6 well yeah. you know UVA was sitting there at 6 and 2 with aspirations of winning the ACC coastal and then closes on a four game slide virginia tech up and down and up and down has a coaching change but finishes with a really emotional win over uva and then old dominion heck the Monarchs are 1-6 under first-year coach Ricky Ronnie.
0: After not even playing football last year, the only program to not even play last year.
1: Right, did not play last year. So Old Dominion had lost 18 consecutive games against FBS competition. The notion of the Monarchs then becoming ball-eligible was preposterous. No one <laughs> would have thought that. But they won the last five, and qualified for a bowl, and they're headed to Myrtle Beach, South Carolina.
0: It'll be a fun couple of weeks during a bowl season on ESPN uh, for for Virginia sports fans coming up. Um, You know, kind of looking at the big picture in collegiate sports, though, We're I I hesitate to say we're coming out of a pandemic because we're obviously still dealing with a lot going on, and we're seeing a lot of, uh, especially in in the sports world, a lot of news regarding COVID right now with tests positive um, popping up. But what is an issue or issues that the pandemic really brought to light in NCAA athletics that probably needed a spotlight sooner than what we than when we got it?
1: I would think will the house of cards that is the financial model in intercollegiate athletics because you know the, the minute that some of these you know big television contracts weren't able to pay off because of canceled tournaments and games and such, university athletic departments were losing tens of millions of dollars. And it just showed how dependent they are on on television money. And they're certainly not self-sufficient by any stretch of the imagination. People had to take pay cuts and there were layoffs. So I think that was one thing that it really highlighted, but it was just like this perfect storm because not only did you have the pandemic and subsequent economic crisis, you had name, image, and likeness in the Supreme Court rebuking the NCAA in a nine, nothing, but the Supreme Court doesn't agree nine, nothing on darn near anything. But those nine justices sure did in scolding the NCAA for its backwards rules in regard to student athlete compensation. So you've got name, image, and likeness. You have transfer freedom now for athletes with one-time waivers. You have the portal out there. There's just so much going on. And then right in the middle of it this summer, Texas and Oklahoma decide, oh, we're leaving the Big 12 and going to the SEC. And had that not happened, Will, you would not have seen old dominion and james madison and liberty jumping conferences because there would have been stability yeah and and i'm sure
0: that the conference realignment carousel isn't done i I remember vividly when the big east and the acc and the big 12 and the the big 12 almost dissolved about 15 years ago because the Mm pac-12 tried to get texas and oklahoma and now they're going to the sec um it's definitely an interesting time with the nca but you mentioned about the TV deals. And I think we all really learned during the pandemic how not just to the NCAA, but to all of these all of these entities, how important getting the games on TV and visible is because they were willing to do that without any fans in the arena, but as long as they could get them on TV. Now, mm-hmm. some of my conversations with a lot of people in collegiate athletics right now is how they can get fans back in the stands. But the streaming capabilities, the TV offerings, everything is right here. So what, what are teams doing? How can they get fans back in, you know, to, to enjoy that game day experience?
1: That, if, if you could solve that, <laughs> well, yeah, you would make a lot of money consulting for a lot of different athletic departments. But, you know, it's the little things. You have to improve Part. And, and access and, and make getting to and from the stadium easier. You have to improve concessions. You have to make um, Wi-Fi more accessible in, so fans can look at their phones and and these days, so they can follow the wagers that they I was
0: just about to say. The gambling legislation. We're we're almost a year into that now. That that's a big
1: deal. Yes, and it's and it's all you know with this right. And if we can't connect to Wi-Fi someplace, we're lost, we're frustrated, we're angry. And oh, by the way, I've paid 100 plus bucks to sit in this seat and I'm not able to get Wi-Fi. When if I'm at home, you know, I can have multiple screens going on. I have concessions in my refrigerator <laughs> that are much more reasonable than they are at the stadium. So, I, you know, it, it's incumbent upon these schools to come up with a better game day experience
0: you mentioned nil name image and likeness that has really kind of been the buzzword, uh, buzz term uh, since it's an acronym over the last six months and i mean we've seen some athletes at, at some of the larger schools pulling in already six seven figures what does that ha- what has that done to the virginia collegiate uh, athletics landscape and is there a school that's kind of uniquely positioned to take most advantage of that opportunity with their athletes
1: I don't really know that there is, Will. And I I don't think we're going to realize the impact here for several years. I'll take you back five or six years ago to when cost of attendance stipends for athletes first came in. And the human cry was, this is going to create an unlevel playing field, because those schools that by the federal formula can offer more in cost of attendance, they're gonna dominate recruiting, they're gonna dominate competition. It's really gonna skew things. Well, guess what? It didn't.
0: Alabama was still Alabama.
1: (laughs) Right. And and with, with NIL, yes, we've seen a lot of big deals early, but for how long, are businesses and or individuals going to be willing to outlay that kind of money, to invest that kind of money if the dividends aren't really there for them. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if I'm paying that kind of money for an athlete who's not producing, then am I going to have second thoughts about investing in the next five-star who, who comes down the road? So in, in that regard, I, I think we're still very much in flux here. And I also wonder if some smaller schools, say here in, in Virginia, not, not small in terms of size, but because this is not a pro sports state. Yeah. You know the schools here, towns like Blacksburg and Charlottesville, Lynchburg and Norfolk and Richmond, that are very college sports centric. You know maybe businesses and individuals in those areas are going to be more willing to invest in their college athletes uh, and compensate them for some NIL deals than perhaps in pro markets such as you know Atlanta, Miami, Boston, Los Angeles.
0: Yeah, that, that's a very interesting point. I mean, we, sports is really about the emotional connection that we have to the teams that we cheer for the athletes that we that we root for. And in Virginia, that's really what we have, we have professional sports, I, I never want to say that we don't, but it's not the top level. It's not. the right, it's not major yeah. And so I don't want to leave any of any of those people out. But you're right, we 37 NCA programs and our communities have those connections. So maybe that does there's no way to really look into a crystal ball, but maybe that does give us that advantage, particularly when it comes to uh, collegiate athletics. But this has gone into kind of a a model and a mindset change for the NCAA. Uh, They've been very staunch against this for for many, many years. 10, 15 years from now, what role do you see the NCAA playing in collegiate athletics? Because I think it could be one of these spider webs where it could go eight to 10 different ways. And one of them being they're no longer needed. The other being, you know, something in between.
1: I think it'll be something in between will because what the NCAA does well, and this puts aside last year's missteps with the women's basketball tournament, Mm -hmm. because the discrepancies between the men's and women's tournaments last year were unacceptable. But on a more general basis, what the NCAA does better than anyone is administer championships and tournaments and such. Now, the NCAA is not in the bowl business, those are separate entities. But the NCAA men's and women's basketball tournaments, the College World Series, College Cup for men's and women's soccer, track, you know, all those sports. The NCAA, in large measure, Does those things really, really well. And oh, by the way, when we were talking about team, this just hit me teams doing really well on a national level. How about JME softball? Exactly. Yes. Getting to the College World Series last year or last spring, not last year. And, you know, what a ride that was. But the NCAA, for the most part, does those events well. And I think we'll continue that will continue into the future. Now, I we hear talk every now and then of the Power Five, <clears throat> excuse me, breaking away and forming their own association, conducting their own championships. I firmly believe that would be a colossal mistake for, for one primary reason. My experience is the appeal of march madness is not just the power fives it's the underdog Mm -hmm. why everybody in the office jumps into the pool and throws five bucks into the kitty and picks a bracket because their school might be in it because vcu might make the final four because george mason might make the final four those are the kinds of stories that really made the NCAA tournament such a nationwide spectacle. And I think if all of a sudden that bracket was solely power five programs, I think it would lose that charm. I think it would lose that appeal. And I I believe that the television ratings would reflect it.
0: And that that kind of leads me into my
1: final point and and question.
0: You know, you you talked about the JMU softball run, and you talked about the College Cup and the College World Series and how they're more visible now. And and that kind of goes back to, you know, the double-edged sword. You want to put as much of this stuff on TV or or give people the capability to watch it, but then what does that do to actually people going to the games? But having it out there has actually elevated a lot of these sports. And like you said, the NCAA does championships extremely well. As we move forward, though, is there going to be a, maybe a little bit of a tipping point where we go, we start to move away from just full access to games and get back into more of, I think, the tradition and the history that has really made college athletics what it is for the past 100, 125 years?
1: Well, my full access will become pay-per-view. Yeah. I, I, I don't think it's uh, unimaginable but by any stretch. So I, I think that could change. And yeah, I, I think, and the more that happens, I think the, the more, to, to your point, people will get back into the traditions and maybe, you know, going back to campus to, to see these events. Uh, it, it's, it's a fascinating time in, in intercollegiate athletics. And back to your question about the NCAA, administering championships, yes, but enforcement and rules and such, I think you will slowly but surely see that removed from NCAA auspices, because frankly, they're so inept at (laughs) it.
0: I was just about to say, as as well as they run championships, I think a lot of sports fans will say they're at the complete opposite end of the spectrum when it comes to enforcing rules. No doubt. (laughs) Well, David, it's always a pleasure catching up with you. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. I know that uh, myself included and a, a lot of people in Virginia, we love college athletics. We love the the programs that we have here. And there's a lot of success that's come from Virginia. So it's really been fun to talk about what's happened this past year and what we can do to look forward. And uh, whether it's for one minute or whether it's 30 minutes like this, always a pleasure talking to you. And I uh, hope you have a wonderful holiday season.
1: Well, same to you and everyone at the hall and everyone who's watching today.
0: Well, be sure to check out David uh, the Richmond Times Dispatch. He is a columnist uh, in the sports section, the sports department over there. Read all of his articles there. You can also follow him on Twitter at by David Teal, all one word. Um, I'd like to once again thank our sponsors, Priority Automotive, the city of Virginia Beach, ESPN Radio, Optima Health, DavCon Inc. Uh, without them, we couldn't do programs like this, uh, not just this year, but moving forward. Uh, Well, once again, I am Will Driscoll from the Virginia Sports Hall of Fame. Be sure to follow us on all of our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, at VASportsHOF. I just have one thing to to, uh, remind everybody, whatever you do, participate, don't spectate, and have a wonderful holiday season.